It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 173 for December 20th, recorded on December 19th in a light snowstorm. This, by the way, is the final program for 2009. TechBiter Worldwide will be back on January 3rd, 2010, with a slightly new look. I hope the remainder of this year meets or exceeds your desires, and that the coming year is enjoyable, entertaining, and perhaps even educational. Sometimes when you return from taking some photographs, the images you see on the screen as you download them to your computer don't look like what you saw in real life. But it's not your photographic ability. It's not your camera. It's physics that gets in the way, and to some extent our own perception. When we, humans, look at a scene in real time, our eyes move and adjust. That allows us to perceive detail in both dark areas and light areas. Cameras aren't like that. They make one exposure that sees everything at once. Adobe's Michael Ninnis helped me understand how to fix this kind of problem with Photoshop, and I'd like to share the technique with you. In December, I spent about three hours with Michael Ninnis, showing me one-on-one some of the neater effects that can be accomplished with masking and blend modes. I have a decent understanding of masking, but blend modes had largely eluded me. After three hours, I had a pretty clear understanding of the basics. I have to confess here. I did not sit down in the same room with Michael Ninnis for three hours, and he didn't really spend three hours with just me, even though I spent three hours with him. I used lynda.com to watch a program on the subject. It was called Michael Ninnis Photoshop for Blend Mode Magic. In January, I'll tell you more about lynda.com, but right now I can tell you this. If you want to learn how to use your spiffy new software or hardware, There's probably a title that will help you at lynda.com. A little bit of background on Michael Ninnis. I interviewed him earlier this year. We talked at length about the CS4 version of InDesign. Ninnis is clearly a very smart guy. I found out that while he was in college at the University of Washington, he was already teaching professional designers and photographers how to use the new tools. Once he finished with college, he moved a few blocks to Adobe's Seattle campus. So after viewing the video... I went in search for a photograph that I could use to practice what I'd learned. I found a picture that I'd taken in downtown Columbus. There's a red brick building in the foreground, a light fixture with some shiny areas on it, and a light tan brick building in the background with some very bright windows. You can see this image on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. The first thing I did was to use the eyedropper tool to sample an area that should be a neutral color. That would get the color balance right. It wouldn't have any effect on the exposure. When you look at the image, you'll see that the windows in the background building are way too bright. The brick building in the foreground is way too dark. That wasn't what I remembered seeing, and I wanted to fix it. I've mentioned previously that I almost always shoot in camera raw mode, and I did here. This is a good reason for using Camera Raw. It allows you to make changes like the ones I'll be making. As more cameras include the ability to shoot in RAW format, those who are serious about their images probably will adopt it. And the Camera Raw format is even being used now on some of the higher-end point-and-shoot cameras. So after using the eyedropper to set a gray point, 
I noticed that the bricks of the background building were more the way I remembered them. Because the building in the foreground was leaning a bit to the left, I rotated the image slightly and cropped it. So after the rotation had cropped, the background building was leaning a little bit, but I decided that would be okay. I could use Photoshop's perspective control tools to improve it, but the keystone effect isn't really very severe, so I just decided to leave that alone. Before passing the image from Adobe Camera Raw to Photoshop, I made a few additional changes, adding a bit of clarity and some brightness. Then I held the Shift key, and that's important, to open the image as a smart object. Once the image is open in Photoshop, I can double-click the layer icon to open the image again in Camera Raw and modify it. Or I can make a copy of it. After Photoshop opened the image, the first order of business was to create two copies of the image as additional smart objects. This is accomplished by right-clicking the layer to reveal the context menu. So now I had three layers, and I named them. Naming the layers isn't essential, but it is helpful. The first layer, the one that's going to retain the midtones, stays on the bottom. The other two layers need to be above. The order, though, isn't important. I named one layer dark and the other bright. And my goal was to modify the images with a couple of goals in mind. The dark image. This is the layer that will be used to add detail to the dark areas of the image. As a result, it will appear extremely overexposed. That is, it'll be exposed for the shadow, so it will be extremely bright. The bright image, this is the layer that's going to be used to add detail to the lighter areas of the image. As a result, it will appear extremely underexposed. That is, I'll be exposing for the highlights. Maybe I should have named these the other way around. I started by working on the bright layer and modified the exposure for the brightest areas, the windows, and the area on the lamp post with the blown-out highlights. Then I returned to Photoshop and opened the dark layer. I needed to modify its exposure so that the red bricks would have more detail. Again, you'll need to check the TechBiter Worldwide website to see how this actually works. When I returned to Photoshop, I had three layers, and I knew that I needed to combine them somehow. I've gotten this far before, so this is where the explanation by Michael Ninnis really began to help. Every layer blends with the layers below it and the type of blend controls how the selected layer affects the layers below it. A blend mode called Screen is the one that will lighten the layer below it, and the blend mode called Multiply is one that will darken the layers below it. But the lightening and darkening need to be applied selectively, and that called for masks. So I started by applying a black mask which blocks everything to both of the new layers. I then turned off the dark layer so that I could work exclusively with the bright layer. The process involves painting with white on the mask so that the overly bright areas will be blended from the bright layer to the layer below it. I worked mainly on the windows and on some portions of the lamp post. When you see what I did with the image, you'll probably think that it's a bit overdone, and that's true, the windows are too dark. That's not what I saw when I was there. They were light, but they had some detail. So reducing the opacity of the layer makes it partially transparent. Now it's beginning to look like what I saw, except for that red brick building in front. So then I turned off the bright layer and turned on the dark layer. I needed to paint white on that layer's mask to reveal detail in the darker sections of the image. That lamppost in front was kind of a challenge. Getting the detail right around the lamppost took some time, and I switched between 
painting white to reveal the contents of the layer and painting black to hide it when I accidentally got too much. As with the bright layer, the effect on the dark layer was too strong, and I reduced the opacity. The result of this effort was a big improvement in the photograph. Take a look on the website, and you'll see the image I started with. Little or no detail in the windows, little or no detail in the red bricks. Really not a very good photograph. After the work was done, the image, although not perfect, is greatly improved. And you'll want to look closely at the left side of the angled roof line. You'll see that I missed a small highlight that shouldn't be there. That would be very easy to fix because Photoshop's masks create changes without modifying the original image. Darkening the windows was particularly challenging where the lamppost was in front, and cleaning up the area around the lamppost in front of the red bricks took quite a bit of time. Photoshop is an expensive tool. Because it offers so many features and so many options, it's easy to be overwhelmed and confounded by the tool. Learning how to use the tool eliminates this frustration. I'm reminded of a saying by the very best craftsmen. They tend to say things like, time spent sharpening the tool is never wasted. And so it is with learning your software. So if you have a new digital camera or a new piece of software, or you get one in the next week or so, take some time, read the manual if there is one, borrow a book from the library, buy a book, seek out some online training from the manufacturer or the publisher. Several software publishers have improved their sites immensely in this area. Or use an independent training option such as lynda.com. The more you know about how your stuff works, the happier you're going to be with it. I installed the Windows 7 release candidate back in May and the released manufacturing version in September. So I've been running some version of the latest Microsoft operating system for about nine months. Nine months into my Vista experience, I'd already seen major problems. Even so, it was more than a year later when I finally removed Vista and upgraded to Windows XP. Thus far, in the Windows 7 experience, I have seen virtually nothing to complain about. That doesn't mean it's perfect, though. Here are some things worth mentioning. Networking. Take networking in a secure environment, for example. I took my notebook computer to the office to see how well it would work with our Wi-Fi network. We have two internal networks, one that's open to anyone who has the appropriate passphrase and another that requires your network login and password. These credentials must be delivered to the server in an encrypted mode. I could get to the open network easily. Windows 7 noticed it was there and asked if I wanted to join it. I said yes, and it asked me for the passphrase. Done. That's the same experience I had at home where I run a Wi-Fi network. But when I tried to connect to the secure network at the office, I was asked for my username and password. When I provided them, nothing happened. A coworker spent about an hour looking for the solution and eventually determined that, by default, the registry entry for the component that would transmit the password securely is set to disable that function. Why? And why is this not documented in a place where the average network engineer might find it? Or why isn't it included in the network setup wizard? Windows 7 comes with ink tools. I don't have a tablet computer, so I don't turn on the ink tools. These are what allow users to write with a stylus on a tablet computer or on a digitizing tablet. Windows 7 actually does a very good job when it comes to handwriting recognition, and the ink feature allows users to sketch things or highlight points on the screen. All of these nice features, but unwanted most of the time if you're sitting at a desktop computer and using the keyboard. 
I was a little surprised on Thanksgiving Day when, after I had been using my Wacom digitizing tablet to work with Photoshop, I noticed that the ink function was enabled. Whenever a dialog opened, the ink icon appeared. The ink writing area was parked in the upper left corner of my screen. I could tap on it to open it, but there was no way to make it go away. Fortunately, Windows 7 help is a lot better than any previous version's help. In a few minutes, I learned that using a digitizing tablet will cause the ink tools to appear, and the close option disappears from the options menu. But the options menu does include an opening tab. To close the pen input, I needed to make two changes there. Although it seems a little odd to me that just using a digitizing tablet or a tablet computer eliminates close from the menu... The solution that Microsoft provided works and permanently changes the operation of the system. Here's another annoyance, but it's not exactly Microsoft's fault. My fancy Sound Blaster Audigy 2ZS sound card isn't certified for Windows 7. In fact, it's not supposed to work at all, and I know that I will need to replace the sound card someday. Fortunately, some clever programmers have found a way to make the sound card marginally useful until I can come up with the several hundred dollars needed to replace it. But I can't really depend on it. Sometimes the sound is good for an extended period. Other times it plays properly for a few minutes, then garbles the sound so badly that it's unintelligible. Fortunately, it seems to work just fine in the recording mode. As I said, this is less of a Microsoft problem than a problem caused by Creative Labs. It's the primary reason that I've decided to replace this card when I can afford it with a more professional unit, one not made by Creative Labs. It's true that Creative Labs won't make any money providing Windows 7 drivers for older hardware, but they also won't make any money from people who are so frustrated with the company that they stop buying Creative Lab products. And occasionally, Windows 7 just slows down. I've seen the problem only on my desktop computer, and fortunately not often enough to even begin to look into it to determine what causes it. On rare occasions, the system just grinds to a halt. The primary suspects, huge amount of disk activity or something simply swamping the CPU, don't seem to work out. There's no disk activity. The resource monitor shows the CPU is virtually idle, but nothing happens when I press a key, at least not immediately. Press the Windows key, and the Start menu might open in 15 seconds or so. Press Control-Alt-Delete to get the Task Manager, and it may appear after 30 seconds or a minute. Now, if the CPU was running at 98% busy instead of 98% idle, I'd understand. If one of the disk drives was showing 100% saturation, I'd know what was happening. When I have time to wait, an orderly shutdown is possible. I usually don't have time to wait, though, so I just cut the power to the system and everything stops. The old rule of computers is this. A computer's attention span is only as long as the cord that connects it to the electrical outlet. On restart, everything's fine. I have not seen anyone anywhere else complain about this, and I haven't seen the problem on any other Windows 7 computer I'm running, including the $300 Windows 7 notebook that my wife is using. So, it may be something specific to my desktop. It might even be related to the Sound Blaster audio card. So, for 2010, I figure all systems are go. When it's time to replace a computer, you'll find Windows 7 on the new machine, unless you buy a Mac, or unless you set up your own Linux machine. Windows 7 is good. Although I would prefer one of the more complete versions of Windows 7, I somewhat grudgingly admit that Windows 7 Home Premium is adequate for most home computers. If you plan to run the computer in an office environment, though, 
Choose the Professional Enterprise Edition or Ultimate. In today's first article, I talked about Adobe. Adobe, in my estimation, is one of the best and most reliable software companies in the galaxy. It's a company that has good ideas, listens to its customers, and generally does the right thing. Generally. Nobody can be perfect all the time, and this week I found out that this maxim also applies to Adobe. On Thursday, my wife logged off the computer and I logged on. Norton Security Scan popped up and wanted to scan the system. Well, that would be okay except for two things. First of all, I detest the Norton suite of protective products because they use so many system resources, and therefore, Norton Security Scan would not be on my machine. My first thought that this was malware, but the graphical representation was clearly by Norton. But I didn't really trust my eyes. I refused to click anywhere on the application's interface. Malware writers don't play by the rules, and sometimes trying to close an application gives it permission to do what it wants to do. I started the task manager, located the application, and killed it after checking properties to see where it lived on the computer and when it was added. And that was a surprise. It had just been added two minutes earlier. After uninstalling the application and deleting a leftover directory that was still on the computer, I turned my attention to the timestamp. My logon time. Why was this installed when I logged on? My best guess is that it's because my wife's account is a standard Windows 7 account, which has limited capabilities to install applications. My account, because I routinely install and remove applications, has administrator status. I suspect that a run-once job was set up and that it ran when I logged on. What I still don't understand is how it got around the Windows 7 user access control restrictions. After rebooting to confirm that Norton Security Scan was gone, I started researching the situation. What had installed the application? And even more troubling, how? Within seconds, I found pointers to Shockwave, the former Macromedia product now owned by Adobe. The Shockwave player allows users to play some amusing games online. Was there a Shockwave update recently, I asked? My wife confirmed that there had been one. That's where Norton Security Scan came from, and Adobe's website confirms it. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see some text from the Adobe website that explains how the Norton Security Scan from Symantec is connected to the Shockwave player and what Norton Security Scan is. A couple of key points in the explanation. Adobe says, Adobe Shockwave users who install Norton Security Scan can upgrade to Norton Internet Security or Norton 360 at a special discount. Aha! Adobe's real reason for offering the application, and applications like these are typically called craplets in the business, is undoubtedly monetary. Adobe almost certainly receives a payment for everyone who upgrades to the full version of the Norton product. And later in the explanation, Adobe says that users who do not wish to take advantage of the offer can easily opt out of the installation. So to avoid having the craplet installed, the user must specifically opt out of the process. This is totally unethical. I am both shocked and dismayed to see Adobe adopt a practice like this. If Adobe wants to offer its users a free trial of a product, that's fine. But they need to be honest enough about it up front to make a legitimate offer. If you'd like to install a free trial of Norton Security Scan, click here. In other words, make the offer opt in. 
As with most large companies, Adobe doesn't provide direct access to corporate personnel. Instead, they work with a public relations firm. Adobe's PR firm is one of the largest and best-known agencies in the business, Edelman. When I told my Edelman contact about the story, he said he would try to have a response from the Shockwave team by the end of business on Friday, the 18th of December. And a business on the West Coast is 8 p.m. where I live. Unfortunately, there was no response by then. This could be because the Macromedia team considers the problem trivial and didn't want to reply. But it could also be because the Macromedia team considers the problem serious and needed to kick it upstairs to Adobe's corporate communication staff. I really wanted to be able to report a response from Adobe, and I will as soon as I have it. In short circuits, the FTC says that chipmaker Intel has engaged in anti-competitive practices. Intel, of course, disagrees. But computer makers say that Intel's discount structure is designed to punish those who buy too many CPUs from competitors, such as advanced micro-devices, AMD. Too many might be one. Intel is the largest maker of CPUs in the world, but the FTC says it got that way illegally. The European Union has said similar things. The FTC now has some additional legislative backing that may help it give competitors a chance in the marketplace. The agency accuses Intel of conducting a systematic campaign to block rivals from selling their microchips by cutting off access to the market. Intel says it was simply offering discounts to computer builders who bought a lot of product from Intel. The builders have a much different story, though, describing a practice that paid builders to withhold AMD-based systems from the market. The FTC has been investigating Intel's business procedures for a year now, and the latest charges follow by just a few days a $1.25 billion settlement with rival AMD. Intel's chief counsel predictably called the latest FTC action misguided and unwarranted. The complaint is an administrative action. That means it will be adjudicated by an administrative law judge within the FTC, but not until late in 2010. So stay tuned. Google says it won't be manufacturing its own phone. Rumor mongers disagree. Google is already a thorn in the side of the industry, but few people see that as a bad thing because cellular service providers rank a few points below used car salespeople and legislators, and understandably so. Google could shake up the smartphone industry if it wanted to. According to the rumor mongers, Google will begin selling phones as early as January. The phones will not be locked into any particular carrier, so take that, Apple and consumers will be able to select any network that is compatible with the phone. This could mean lower prices for consumers and eliminating the need to sign up for those two-year contracts that have serious penalties for early termination. But the Google phone will probably cost a lot more because it won't be subsidized by a carrier. In Europe, phones are unlocked by default, and they cost more. Will Americans and Canadians be willing to pay $400 to $600 for a smartphone instead of $100 or $150 and then locking themselves into a two-year contract? Maybe it depends on how much you value freedom. Google has been mum, as it usually is, on its plans. But here are a couple of data points. Nearly all phones in the U.S. and Canada are purchased from cell phone companies, about 90%. And Nokia has attempted to sell unlocked phones without subsidies from carriers. They have not been successful. This change, if it happens, would be a big one for Google. Google is a company that bases its existence on software, not hardware. The Nexus One is hardware. 
Whether Google can succeed in the hardware market is anybody's guess. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.